This episode of The Candid Frame is sponsored by Charcoal Book Club. The Charcoal Book Club is the monthly subscription service for photo book enthusiasts. Working with the most respected names in contemporary photography, Charcoal selects and delivers essential photo books to a worldwide community of collectors. Each month, members receive a signed first edition monograph and an exclusive print to add to their collections. Join the club by visiting charcoalbookclub.com and use the promo code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. Music is a big part of all our lives. Regardless of our generation, we each have a personal soundtrack that accompanies the memories of our youth. For some, this includes memories of going to clubs, to either hear live bands or hit the dance floor. It was in such venues where the crowd with its stew of personalities, style, sexuality, and fashion provided a wondrous escape. During the 90s, photographer Steve Eichner was provided exclusive access to the world of New York clubs. Serving as the official photographer for clubs like The Limelight, Club USA, and The Roxy, he documented a world unlike any other. Before Instagram and social media, he and his camera provided the only glimpse to a world that you had to be a part of to witness and experience. Now he provides us entry into that world in his book, Into the Limelight. It demonstrates how a photographer and his camera can preserve an important and a fleeting moment in time. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Well, Steve, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Oh, I, I appreciate you having me with so many photographer uh, luminaries. Let me get my voice together. I haven't been talking much lately with the pandemic, so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the book is really amazing. I was never much of a club goer, but uh, when I did, it, it could be amazing. I, I never made a, a club scene in New York when I was there, but my cousins, uh, I remember the, the first time, I think it was, he was in the seventies or something, late seventies. They they said they were going out, and it was just like, and it was like midnight, and I was like, "You guys are going out now?" And I didn't get it because in Los Angeles, you know, you know, you'd be coming home like at two o'clock. There, it was like it was an all night thing. Oh, for sure, yes. I mean, we took uh, after work. People would take a disco nap. And <laughs> wake up about 10 or 11 and, uh, you know, at midnight it would just start start happening. And by uh, 2, 3, 4 in the morning, that was the meat of it for sure. Wow. And then if you were really uh, a party animal, you would go for the after hours clubs, which went from 4 till sunrise and beyond. Wow. <laughs> so you grew up just outside of the city. Yes, I grew up in Long Beach, Long Island. I was born in Queens, and when I was one, my mom, Barbara, and my father, Jay, bought a house in Long Beach, which is a little beachy surf community outside of New York City and uh, always confused with Long Beach, California. So for people who, do, who sort of don't understand what the, the club scene was like during the years that you were photographing, even be, before, during the time when you were making the the, the photographs, it was it wasn't just that oh this was just people from 
you know, Manhattan that would go there. I mean, this these clubs were people were attracted from all over the place, from from New Jersey, from different parts of from any of the different boroughs, from all these different, you know, groups, straight, gay, black, rich, young. You know, it was like everybody was drawn to these clubs during the 90s. It's not like uh, it was exclusive to any, any particular group, right? Uh, correct. It was actually very inclusive and very diverse. And uh, so the people that traveled from outside of the city that we use the term called bridge and tunnel, which they had to come through a bridge, go over a bridge or come mm-hmm. through a tunnel to get to the city. But that was kind of the social currency at that time. It was before social media and you had to be there. You had to be present to be part of the scene. So these mega clubs of the 1990s attracted all walks of life. And that was the, I call it the primordial slime for culture in those years where artists and fashion designers and, and music and music and DJs and dance and photography and art would all kind of converge in these clubs. And it wasn't about how much money you had. It was more about what can you add to the party. The particular clubs that I worked for as house photographer, which were Limelight, Palladium, Club USA, and Tunnel, were mega clubs. So you had room after room of various music and art installations. And so the book In the Limelight is really like walking through a night in 1990s club life. So you may turn a corner and see a couple having sex on a couch and then go to the dance floor and see a drag queen dancing on a riser or a celebrity like uh, Leonardo DiCaprio having fun with his friends. So the book was really formulated as a way to bring you into the club scene of the night. So before you started photographing, had how did you find out about this world? As a young kid, did you hit some of these clubs or what, what was the story there? Well, these clubs didn't really exist when I was a kid. It was uh, my high school prom. We went to Studio 54. So um, so there was that was kind of the predecessor was Studio 54. And if that faded away, um, new clubs came up and and filled that void. Um, So to answer your question, I grew up in Long Island and I was really not aware of the club scene besides like the famous studio 54 going there in high school. So I became interested in music photography bands. And my first job was like a camera and electronics store in Long Beach was a little family Mm. store through working there. I learned about film developing and cameras and how they worked. And as a hobby, I would take a camera and buy tickets to a concert like the who and get up as close as I could and snap photos. And um, so that that's how I kind of got into photography and, but it was always a hobby for me until college came around and I didn't know exactly what I was going to do. So I briefly studied accounting and failed out miserably and all along just doing my music and band photography and also Um, photographing things I liked and enjoyed along the way. So the way this came about is I failed out miserably. I decided to re-enroll as a photography major, and I took two years of photography school and then moved into Manhattan. With no safety net, I wanted to make a life as a photographer, and I was determined to do it. 
in those years, in the early 90s, late 80s, when I moved to New York City, it all overlapped. So you had a club like The Limelight, which would have bands a few nights a week. They had a rock and roll church on Sundays. And so through that, I discovered this nightlife scene, which the book is about. So these clubs were just up and coming. A man named Peter Gation owned the four big nightclubs, and I I became his house photographer, and that was kind of my big first score uh, in the photography business. And um, that, you know, it was like, I call it like Halloween on acid. It was like, you know, landing on planet fun. And I was always a party guy, and I was always like into the party. So I really like hit pay dirt. I came into this thing and, you know, you went to these clubs and everywhere you looked, you had uh, the club kids that were, almost like dressed like in circus makeup, you know, it was like, so as a photographer, it was like visual ecstasy. That's why I, the subtitle of the book is visual ecstasy. And, you know, I was 20 something, I was learning the craft and going out every day. And remember it was before cell phones, before social media, before the internet. So that was the social media going out. And that's how I built my career is, you know, going out and meeting different people that hired photographers. And and the job was actually to photograph celebrities to get publicity for the clubs. That's what the house photographer job is, was. And I had a beeper. And wherever I was in the city, or even if I was fast asleep, the beeper went off. I jumped out of bed. I called the number. <laughs> the, the, the publicist for the club would say, Julia Roberts is on the dance floor at Club USA. And I'd grab my camera and get in a cab and drive up there and snap those photos. Um, and on the way home, I would drop the film at the lab. In the morning, I'd wake up early and shop those photos around to the New York Post and the Daily News. And at the end of the day, after shopping the photos around, um, I would drop them on my agency, which was Retina at the time, and they would syndicate them worldwide. And the idea was that if a photo was published in the caption, it would say, Julia Roberts dancing at Club USA. But the beautiful part of this book is actually 80% of the photos are the photos I shot for myself. So it was between the, the the celebrities I was photographing. I knew that this was a time in history that needed to be documented. And I, I really felt that in my soul. So even though I was a struggling photographer and as you know, film and processing cost money and I was struggling, I kind of had the wherewithal to know that I need to document this. And that's what I love so much about this book. Um, because when Gabriel Sanchez, uh, the photo editor, who at that time worked for BuzzFeed, and I connected, we started going through these old fo- folders and files of, of photography that I hadn't looked at in 25 years. I had been a working photographer and never really looked back at this material. So it was just such a thrill to be able to like uncarve this. It was like, a, you know, an archaeological dig in a way. Yeah. And what's important to understand for, for our listeners is that uh, cameras weren't allowed. And because they aren't weren't as ubiquitous as they are today with people's smartphones, you were the only one there to really document all this. Exactly true. I was in there with my camera, and, and in a way I was like a rock star because 
It was it was really a craft. There was chemistry involved developing the film. There was there was an art form. It was technical. And uh, you know, please keep in mind that I was photographing with manual focus in a dark room. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I was distance focusing. I knew that if I was on F8, I could be between five and 11 feet from my subject. And so, yeah, I was documenting this and, and, um, photo, you know, everyone didn't have a cell phone and there weren't other people documenting and, and people were dressed up for it. It was, it was an Instagram moment without Instagram. So I was the window on the world for a lot of this. Yeah. And, and what's fascinating is this was such a, a focal point. I mean, you mentioned it earlier that it was a sort of a magnet for all aspects of community and culture in New York. I mean, you had gay kids, not only from New York, but people had come from elsewhere. You had artists, you had celebrities, you had up and coming hip hoppers. I mean, it was just anybody and everybody was there. And that was unlike any other place uh, in the entire city. I mean, yeah, the city is diverse, but there are very few places where you would have almost everybody represented in, in, in one particular place where everybody was purposely hanging out together, which yeah. must have been incredible. It was an incredible energy, and it was by design. Peter Gation, his whole concept was to have Wall Street guys and ladies looking at, you know, transsexual people and have a fashion show pop up in the middle and always be recreating the interiors of the club. So during the day, you'd have artists come in and work, uh, put in installations. And it was actually the center of the universe by design. And it really cultivated creativity. Um, the Tongo Club, which was another one of Peter's clubs, it was the only place in Manhattan at that time to see and hear hip-hop music live. And so he was always reaching for the new and the different and the exotic and, and, and putting that together. And, you know, he always said it would just be a boring party if it was a bunch of the same people. So mm-hmm. you want that kind of, it's like opposite ends of a magnet, you know, it's attracting and 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 moving apart and, and spinning and spiraling. And so you had this whole massive energy. Um, when I imagine this time, uh, I think about how people would find out about where to go because it was so much about what was the cool place to go. Yeah. There could be a lot of clubs that would do You know, say, okay, this is, you know, you can dance here and have a good time, but it was really about the buzz. It was really about getting people excited about this being the place. And, for a club, though, the window of opportunity can be very brief, right? Yes, it can. It can. Yes. So talk about, you know, what you observed in terms of what a club needed to do in order to sort of maintain that kind of interest for a prolonged period of time. It was constantly reinventing the club, constantly making it new. Even I knew a club, but it, one day I walk into the tunnel and the entranceway is converted into the bathroom. So now you're walking through urinals and toilets to get into the club. Many of the clubs were flash in the pan. They were around for a year and, you know, you want to go to the hot one. Luckily, Peter had a formula that he just kept reinventing and keeping it fresh. And he was bringing in promoters and musicians and and different people that had beautiful concepts of how to keep things going and moving. And it was never the same thing twice. Mm -hmm. So... And then you had promoters that 
went around with flyers. So you figured out, okay, there's a flyer. You knew certain promoters. You were on the mailing list. You would actually get mail in the in the snail mail where to go. Um, and it was a network. It was it was a verbal network. It was word of mouth. Um, and each night of the week, you knew that Red Zone was Thursday and Friday would be Roxy and Saturday would be the limelight and Sunday would be the tunnel. So there was also a network and a circuit. And if you were on that circuit, if you were in that network, you wouldn't pay admission and you'd get some drink tickets when you came, when you walked in the door. And it was about dressing up fabulous and looking fabulous and adding to the party. It was a seriously difficult thing to keep the party going, to keep the, the longevity of the clubs. But somehow, Peter Gation managed to do that. Yeah, you mentioned Studio 54, which is probably one of the first clubs that people that comes to mind for people when they think about that sort of the club scene in New York. And that was largely in the in the 70s and maybe the early 80s. But h- how would you say that, that the clubs in the 90s that you were you were photographing, how were they different from what was experienced in the, in the heyday of Studio 54? Like I said, I went to Studio 54 once or maybe twice when I was a teenager. And I remember it being just a big room. I mean, the energy was amazing. It was fabulous. It was great music. It was during the era of disco. But it was really one room, and it didn't change that much. It was a, a dance floor and a balcony and some VIP seating. What changed in, in the 90s were... They became mega clubs. So they were, for instance, the limelight was in a church and there were, which, which is, uh, you know, a juxtaposition as it is, you know, you're going to party in a very sacred place. So that alone made it very, uh, mm. <laughs> you know, you were right away, you're walking in and you see stained glass and spires. And so, you know, you felt very decadent, but Within that church, there was a room that was playing goth music, and the main dance floor was playing techno. And you went up to the VIP room, and it was designed by the uh, the artist H.R. Geiger, you know. And so there was there was so many levels and facets, and so you could either explore something that you've never seen or heard before, or you can go with your bridge and tunnel crowd and listen to the popular music that you wanted. And not only was it Limelight, but then you had Club USA, which was a giant former theater in, in the middle of Times Square, and inside was made to mimic and, and match the outside. So you had neon lights and and peep shows and, you know, just leather S&M room. And then you went to another club like the tunnel, which was an old railway tunnel. And it was literally a city block long. And, you know, at one end they had a half pipe with skateboarders and they had side rooms that were ball pits. So you see people throwing these little yellow balls. You could jump in there like, you know, like a playroom or a foam room with, you know, full of bubbles. So, you know, that, that was the era of the mega club. And, and so that's what differed. The Studio 54 kind of had that original vibe of celebrity and kind of exclusiveness. And these mega clubs were less exclusive. They were more about getting everybody in there and kind of feeding off of all that different energy. So uh, you know, how were you making a, a living early on? You mentioned that you were being paid by, by the club owner, but you were also 
selling, trying to sell your images to like magazines and publications to get the the press. Did you? How how would you have to sort of market your your work? It wasn't like you could put it just email stuff. You would you have to go and like take your film to all the different publications, give them a call, and tell them, oh, this is what I have. How would it work back then? Yeah. So. I got paid on both ends. So I got paid to show up from Peter Gation. I think I got $100 to run down and take the photos. And then I had be- developed relationships with the New York Post and the Daily News and People Magazine and Rolling Stone. So once I had the developed film in my hands, I would show up at the Post and from the, the reception desk, I would call the photo desk and they say, sure, Steve, come in. Let's see what you got. And they throw it down on the light table and loop it. And if they decided they wanted to use a photo, publish a photo, they would uh, they would pay me a page rate. So a quarter page, half page, full page. And it was something like 50 bucks for a quarter page, 75 for a half page, 150 for a full page. And then at the end of the day, I would run over to my photo agency and they would make dupe slides of whatever was left and syndicate that around the world. And I would get a sales report every 30 days that would, it was a 50-50 split. So if they sold it in Russia or in China or in Europe. or So so that was, that was the hustle. But I was also doing headshots for actors during the day. And um, I was also shooting bands and music and CD covers. I mean, I, I, I did everything I could to make it a career. And, and, you know, I had struggles and there were times I couldn't pay the rent. And I remember there were times where there was a time I went to the, to B and H with my change jar and you know, <laughs> we were in quarters so I could buy a few rolls of film to get out on a shoot one night. And so, so yeah, it was, it was always a hustle, but I, in those days I would say, I'll take any job that has a paycheck at the end of the line and I'll figure out how to do it. And the clubs were a great networking vehicle. I had my business cards and, you know, if I knew I'd see people, I would bring prints around and give people photo prints and, and, mm-hmm. and you know, network that way. Since you were the only photographer at, at, at these clubs, what were the other photographers doing? Were they like sort of paparazzi work, work, working outside the building? Were they like working at other clubs? What, what was the scene like there in terms of the f- photographers? Well, there were the photographers that lingered outside the doors of the clubs and they waited for people to come and go like paparazzi style. In those years, you could make money shooting bands for Rolling Stone and Spin, and and you would get an assignment for. And I did it myself. I would, Rolling Stone would call me and say, "We'd like you to photograph uh, this band, Morphine." And so you would go there, and it would be the first three songs, you no know, Flash, and you would get an assignment fee for that. And so, luckily, I was in the golden age of photography when you actually could get paid an, uh, a, a reasonable assignment rate and there were reasonable page rates. So the other photographers were all kind of doing that hustle. And in those years, it was pre Getty and pre, you know, pre photo agency, pre Patrick McMullen. So the photographer was the brand. So mm. photographers, people knew, okay, if I call Steve, he's going to get that celebrity shot. He's going to be unobtrusive. He's going to, he has the connections to move that shot around the world and get me the publicity. So I started working for PR agencies and corporations and a lot of things worked out of that. And that was other photographers as well. Other photographers were building their careers and in, in their specialties. Well, you, you were 
you were real smart in that you knew the value of the work even back then. Because I know a lot of photographers uh, who probably would have shot, and then as soon as it's as the image lost its sort of immediate value, they would just sort of like move on to the next thing and not really take care of the work. The value of their work is only accumulated with 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 time. You know, with with film, even though they have a longevity, you really have to take care of that stuff. Especially if you're shooting with largely with chrome. Is that right? Chrome and black and white negative, yes. Yeah, so tell me about how, how you took care of of your work and, and when did you finally think it was a good time to sort of revisit it? Well, I did. I really value, I never threw out a negative in my entire career. I never, so I put everything in archival pages and into files and into archival books. And I, I kept it in a climate controlled environment whenever as much as I could. I mean, I moved a lot in my lifetime and over my career. And, um, but I always knew that I wanted to preserve this work and, after this era of the nightclubs, my career went even higher and continuing the party theme, I became the night photographer for Women's Wear Daily for Fair Fairchild Publications. So I became a staff photographer for 19 years, a full-time salary photographer covering fashion and night the nightlife of fashion. So fashion shows that happened in the evening, red carpets and perfume launches and and so and that was a 19 year career that this work was sitting in file cabinets but i always said one day i'm going to get to it so the way that in the limelight this book came about was um i got an email from gabriel sanchez um and this is about three years ago and he said oh i saw some of your work from the 1990s nightlife and i'm doing a story for buzzfeed i'd like to interview you and use some of your photos and you know it was like one of these 30 craziest photos of 1990s nightlife in new york mm -hmm. <laughs> so gabriel and i hit it off and we have a lot of common interests and um so he he during that interview said you know I'm sorry, I got it wrong. So during that interview, I, I mentioned to him that I'd like to do a book of this material. And the article was published and it went viral and got lots and lots of likes and looks and comments. And so he circled back with me and he said, if you're still interested, let's do this. So he came to my studio. He looked at some of the work. He said, this is brilliant. We have to do this. And then we went through the process. I mean, it's, it was a long road. First, we needed to get a literary agent. And luckily, Gabriel was able to bring on uh, J.L. Sturmer from New Leaf Literary. And she lived the era and loved it and said, you know, these pictures have to get out there. I mean, this is an era that I lived, I loved. And, and these photos are so brilliant and there's so much life and color and culture. And then we started the process of we created a pitch and it's like a business plan. I, I yeah. you had books published, so the publisher wants to know uh, who's the competition, what are similar books, what's the demographic of people that would buy this book. And so luckily Gabriel dug into that and uh, JL and we all worked on that and sample chapters. And But it took a year of going to publishers and getting a maybe, getting a this is great, it's not the right time, someone's going to take this. And, and after a year, 
we had a conversation and JL said, we're going to put it on the back burner for a bit. And I got a little discouraged and we started to think about self-publishing. And a month or two later, I said, hey, how's everybody doing? Let's get a cup of coffee. And JL said, great timing. Uh, I just sold a book I have to a client and uh, she's interested in your book. So we went up to Prestel. Holly Ledoux was the representative from Prestel. And she said, I want to do this book. We met. She liked it. She said, I see big pictures, fashion, small, small captions, culture. And we went and, you know, went through the process. I mean, it was all a learning curve for me. And the joy of it was actually once we inked the book deal that Gabriel and I spent a summer looking through the photos, just, you know, going through and pulling and calling and agonizing over which ones would be in the book and, and talking about it. And, you know, they're like your babies and I'm attached to certain ones and gave yeah. them, you know, and then Holly had her opinion. So I don't know if that answered your question, but. I think- no, yeah, it does. <laughs> you, know, you have like probably like 200 plus uh, images in the book. Yes. And, and God, you must have had tens of thousands of, of slides to, to go through. What was sort of the, the parameters in, in deciding, you know, which, which images would go into to the book? Um, we had guidelines from, from the publisher, and her concept was fashion and the culture. And she basically said right off the bat, celebrity books don't sell it's not really interesting to me. So our first poll was all of this atmosphere and culture and color and makeup and close-ups. And so we pulled about 400. And, and then she said, now I'd like to see a few of the celebrity photos to sprinkle in. So then we went back and we did a second poll. And from there, Holly and Gabriel and I kind of, it was a process of elimination and, um, that's how we came up with the 200 books. But, it, it, you know, it's hard and it's agonizing. And then I look at it sometimes and I say, you know, I could have had this yeah. and that. Overall, I'm thrilled. I mean, for me growing up, a photography book was the peak of a photography career. There wasn't Instagram and, and you know, there wasn't uh, in, Internet. And so I looked at, you know, some of the first books I had was like uh, Annie Leibovitz book or uh, – Richard Avedon, American West, and I had Robert Maplethorpe's book early on. And for me, always in the back of my head, one day this could be in a book. One day this could be yeah. in a book. Every day I get solicited for things to buy. Whether it's through banner advertising or an email blast, someone is encouraging me to spend my money on a lot of things, most of which I don't need. When it comes to photo or or computer-related stuff, I get very tempted, believing that I need that second monitor or new lens. Thankfully, I'm able to resist most temptations, recognizing that it's more of a want rather than a need. When spending my money, I'm trying to be more forward-thinking which is resulting in my investing more in books than electronics. I find that books nurture me and my creativity in a way that most other products can't. I have books that I've owned for over 30 years that deliver me such value. I can't say the same thing for anything that's currently in my camera bag or sitting on my desk. 
photo books have become an invaluable part of my journey as a photographer. That's why I'm so happy to have Charcoal Book Club as a sponsor for The Candor Frame. They curate and offer books from great contemporary photographers. And as part of your membership, each month you'll receive a copy of a new book and a collectible print to add to your collection. It's a wonderful thing to look forward to each month. They offer free shipping for the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. It's subsidized elsewhere. And if you're not feeling that month's selection, that's okay. You can swap it out for a different one of a similar value. Visit their website to see what they've offered in the past and what you have to look forward to. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com today. And remember to use the code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. And thanks to the many of you who have supported the Candid Frame financially each month. Your contributions have helped us so much over the past year during a very challenging time. Only a handful of listeners contribute to the show financially, which may surprise you, but but it's true. If you've been thinking about it, why not take the time to become a Patreon supporter today? It's really easy to do. You can do that by contributing $5, $10, $20 or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame. Just $5 a month from you could make a big difference. Thank you as always for your support. I can imagine some art director who's going to make a film set in that time is probably going to use your book as a reference. Oh, let's hope so. Netflix, here we come. <laughs> <laughs> so what what happened to this scene? Why why did it eventually sort of uh, peter out? Oh, well, it, uh, Peter, Peter Gation, Peter, use the word Peter. Um, actually, I think it would still be going right now. I think Steve, Peter would still be in business. And it was um, the Giuliani era. Giuliani came into, Mayor Giuliani of New York City came into power um, in the mid-90s, and he wanted to clean up New York City, and he had this quality of life policy. He made Peter Gation public enemy number one, and his excuse was that there was a drug use, and, and people were loud, and the uh, the... Community boards didn't want the loud noise and the nightlife. And so he tried to pin Peter Gation on drug charges, that drugs were being sold in his clubs and that Peter was profiting from it. And he really targeted the nightclubs and made an an effort to close them down. In the end, he never got Peter on any drug charges. I was there. I was in the offices. I saw what was going on, and Peter was not involved. Anywhere you have a gathering of people, whether it's Lollapalooza or, um, you know, uh, any kind of show or uh, Coachella, there's going to be people that do drugs, and there's going to be people that party. And that happened in in, in all of the clubs, not just Peter's clubs. It, It happened and it was part of the culture, but it wasn't being condoned by Peter. In fact, he was trying to root it out and keep keep the dealers out of the club. Um, so ultimately, Peter was taken down on some trumped up tax charges. And Peter's a citizen of Canada. So then he was d- deported and then ushered in the era of bottle service and little clubs and velvet ropes and VIP rooms and 
that was around 97, 98 when it finally petered out. And then on top of that, there was the, the Club Kids murder where um, you may have read about it. So mm. one of the Club Kids, Michael Alec, murdered his drug dealer and it was a big scandal around New York City. And so that also added to the clubs are bad and yeah. And and it kind of had run its course in a way, the that that part of nightlife in New York, as things do in New York, you know, things go in and out of fashion. But it became a lot less fun. I mean, the the bottle service and then it was became about how much money you have. And, you know, it wasn't an interaction of all kinds of diverse people. It was you sitting with your group of friends with, you know, ordering a bottle of champagne with a sparkler on it and Mm -hmm. showing off. And then then also the internet started to come in and cell phones started to come in in the 2000s. And it became more of people became more self-conscious of themselves and their brands. And so it it was a, it was a shift, but. Oh yeah. I mean, considering some of the things that you photographed during the nineties, that that a lot lot of people would not want to be seen indulging themselves or, or, or being surrounded by some of the people that you illustrated in, in your photographs. Yeah, I was lucky. I mean, people really had their guard down, you know, uh, later in my career, it became every celebrity had a publicist. And the publicist was the gatekeeper, and it was always set up shots. We're going to set up a shot for you. But back in my early career, when I, even if I covered the after party of a, a movie premiere, we were allowed to roam around and get Sean Penn smoking a cigarette with a cocktail and get people dancing and then letting loose. And as my career career pro- progressed, it became more and more controlled. So that's why the 90s, that era, everyone was just so loose and fun. And, you know, I was really the only camera in the room. There was nothing to be afraid of. You know, there was nobody going to sneak up and snap a picture of you. Yes. So, you know, you said you worked for a magazine as as a staff photographer covering other sort of events in the in the in the city. So it wasn't just just sort of the club scene. Tell me about some of the other things that you photographed that sort of reflected the sort of the the culture of New York in which it wasn't just about partying. It was also about being seen about, you know, you would garner your reputation in terms of where you were going, who you were seen with, if you were photographed, if you got publicity. And I think probably it. Outside of Los Angeles, probably uh, New York is a uh, uh, is one of the other cities in which that's your cachet. Yes, people are talking about you. Yes. Well, once the building your brand became a thing, and that was the early two thousands, and then you had your Paris Hiltons and your Kim Kardashian culture come in. It became a red carpet culture, so people would just go to a red carpet and walk the carpet to get exposure for themselves, to build their brands. And, and then you had Getty images that emerged that kind of syndicated those pictures worldwide. So if you, you could be a nobody, but if you were being photographed constantly and being in the, in the magazines and newspapers, just for dressing well, you could build Mm -hmm. a brand from nothing. So then, so you had your Paris Hilton, who was, yes, she was a young, rich socialite and beautiful and knew how to dress, but she learned how to work that system. In the early days, to be a socialite, you had to be a blue blood. You had to go to the right school and the right party. And and actually, Mm -hmm. you know, you had to be invited into 
this socialite scene and go to the right charities and fundraisers. But as things became began to shift, it didn't matter as much what your lineage was. It was more of, am I on the scene? Am I beautiful? Am I getting pressed? Uh, you know, am I scandalous? It seems like you mentioned before, I guess, the club kids and, and that they were like a small group that basically built their own their own brand, their own sort of reputation, and that they ended up becoming a magnet for people, that they became in, in their own way the celebrities of this club culture. Is that something that was that you saw much of? The club kids were the center of the 1990s club land. And it, to describe, I mean, it was like the pushing the boundaries of everything. They were in your face and thumbing their nose at the world. And, you know, it was like green hair and, and lipstick for eyeshadow and, you know, putting a fishnet stocking over your head and six foot platform shoes and doing as much drugs and ketamine and, and ecstasy and dancing the night away and staying awake for three days and, and, just pushing every limit that they could and seeing how what they could get away with. Yeah. They were also the promoters for the club. So they would be paid by Peter and the other clubs to bring people to the clubs. They were the, they were the first influencers in a way. They were the club influencers and they were on Geraldo. They went, they did all the daytime talk shows and they, you know, so they, and, and when you went to a club, they were the spectacle. They were what you looked at. And in those days, people weren't distracted by their phones. So you were present in the moment. If there were club kids dancing on risers on the dance floor, you paid, you were present, you played full attention. And if the curtain went up and boy George, boy George was performing, you paid full attention to that. So, so the club kids really were the centerpiece of the action. And the leader of the club kids was Michael Alec who wound up being the, the party monster where the movie was made. And he was mm -hmm. the one that actually killed Angel Menendez and, and went to jail for 20 years for it. And so that was kind of the end of the club's kids. Once you're, then once he, the murder happened and he got arrested for it, it became not cool to be a club kid anymore. But in the, in the beginning, it was very innocent of the club kids. They were kids from Iowa and Kansas that came to New York and in their hometowns, they couldn't explore their sexuality and they couldn't be, come out of the closet. And New York, it was, it was uh, you know, it was a safe place and the clubs were safe and they could experiment and meet with each other. And, and so, they, so in the beginning, it was very innocent, but then it became how far can we push it? And Michael Alley became famous and he was pushing everything as far as he could. And then the hard drugs got involved and fame and, and yeah. you know, all-nighters. And so it became self-destructive. Yeah, it's fascinating. I think it was written about in the introduction of the book is that you could get people together there that if one of these people went into that person's neighborhood, uh, there would have been some issues, right? But right. Within, the, within the club, it's like everybody was like, they were cool with each other. Right. It was that type of atmosphere where, hey, this is OK. I mean, if one of these club kids walked through Bensonhurst at that time or, you know, especially that time, I remember, I remember that time. 
there would be a clash. But in the club, hey, we're cool, you know. We're looking at each other, and, and I'm looking at you going, well, you look kind of crazy. And the club kid is looking at a guy in a suit and a tie going, I would never wear that. Yeah. I'm sure that a bunch of memories sort of flashed back when you were looking through all these uh, these slides and these black and white negatives. What were you reminded of that you had forgotten? My youth. (laughs) (laughs) A real true love for photography and documenting and how the rest of my career, which I've been blessed to have a fantastic, I'm knocking on wood, fantastic, career after that was that was my learning that was my school that was how i networked and met everybody so yeah i mean i just i just learned so much from looking back at these and remembered like my you know youthful innocence and 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 the people and and their kind of an influence on my life and i saw people that helped me along the way and gave me jobs and shoots and it became, you know, it's sentimental when you look back at 25 years ago of your life. And then, and then, and I was surprised. I was like, wow, I was actually technically really good before TTL flash. Oh, yeah. Or autofocus. And I, you know, I said, wow, I, you know, I, I didn't realize even what I was doing at the time. It was almost second nature. I was just documenting. So what do you think were the, the mo- more important skills that you learned during that time that were indispensable to the rest of your career? Um, speed, accuracy. One of the things I learned early on in those days, and you know, as we hit on before, I, I was shooting chromes, you had to get the exposure right, and it had to be perfectly sharp. There, People Magazine would not run a picture, no matter who was in it, what, how good it was, if it wasn't tack sharp in those days and perfectly exposed. So I had to get the money shot. I was always, you know, checking, making sure the film was wound and double and triple checking. And so um, so my technical ability, I think, really, I had a good foundation in that moving forward in my career. And to be a people person, to be a chameleon. So to be in, uh, you know, in my career, I've gone from like a black tie event to an Avril Lavigne concert in the same night. And so to be a chameleon, but always fit in in a way that made my subjects feel comfortable and to get the most out of people, to try and draw the best out of people, just try to interact with people and, and realize that everybody is a person, everybody you know, has an ego, people want to be photographed or they don't, and sometimes they don't. So to kind of respect that when you, when, when you can, when you have to, yeah. You know, with everyone having their phone, with everyone's basically in control of their own quote unquote brand, it's, it's very different in terms of a photographer being able to make a living from documenting not only celebrities, but, but, but culture. Um, what, what's, what's needed today in order to be able to do that? Ooh, it's a tough field now. I, I don't know if I would want to be starting out as a photographer right now. I mean, it's, uh, the people I know, my colleagues are, you know, it was hard before the pandemic. I mean, things were dropping off. Rates were going down. People were shooting jobs on their own cell phones with their own point-and-shoot cameras. So I've been blessed that 
I came into it at a time when photography was a viable career and it was hard and it was competitive and I struggled to get there. Um, and then I was lucky enough when this club scene ended in 1997 that I was hired as a full-time staff photographer and that lasted almost 20 years. So, so in this particular environment, it's, it's hard to say, you know, I see like photographers like Tyler Mitchell, who I admire, and mm -hmm. he's doing Vogue covers. And, and I heard him interviewed recently with Ryan McGintley, and Ryan asked him, film or digital? And Tyler was like, uh, film, because digital is too easy. So, <laughs> so, you know, so I admire people like that. And I see people, you know, with on Instagram that are very talented and, I think it's more about brand building now and, 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 you know, I've, I've heard through other photographers that now when a photographer is being hired for a job, they look at your Instagram followers to see if you, she shoots a job for me, who's he going to post it to? And is it going to get us some extra, you know, social credit when that photographer posts that he's shooting a job for us. So so I've been blessed that I found my way as a full-time staff career photographer. And I don't know if I jumped in right now where I would be. Do you think you're going to uh, delve back into the, uh, the catalog and, and uh, do more with the work or has there been more attention to the work as a result of the release of the book? Yes, a hundred percent. So Gabriel and Gabriel is now uh, he moved on from Buzzfeed. Now he's the photo editor for New York times so congratulations and thank you, Gabriel, for everything you did because you really brought this book to life and did a great job. So I owe a lot to you. But in looking through my archive, he said, I see six or seven more books here. He said, quote, unquote, you're the Vivian Mayer of 1990 <laughs> <laughs> um, Because I was working my ass off. I was yeah. not only the house photographer for Peter, but I was working for a, a music club called Wetlands, uh, Wetlands Preserve, and they had music seven nights a week. And I was working for PR firms, and I was, you know, um, covering all the music festivals that went on. And I was growing up with bands like, Spin Doctors and Blues Traveler and Joan Osborne. So I was also documenting this 1990s jam band scene in New York City. So, yeah, so for me going forward, it's more books. It's going back into the archive. It's getting uh, back out there and shooting events. God hopes that we can do that soon and people start getting back together. But, you know, it, it, and it's been rough because, you know, when you think of a book, you think of going on a tour and signing books and meeting yeah. people in person, getting that personal interaction. So we're hoping to do a second push for In the Limelight in uh, the spring and some more books. And then as the vaccine hits and people start getting back together, some more parties and events and hopefully life will go on and back to normal. Oh, yeah. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that photographer be and why? Well, I've thought about this a lot because I've been listening to your show, and I have to say I love your show and, oh, and thank you. all of the luminary photographers and your deep knowledge of the craft. It's, it's, it's just so wonderful to listen to. Uh, my photographer would be Bill Cunningham. Oh, yeah. 
for a lot of what I did as later with Women's Wear Daily. He invented it. And I call him a photography monk because he lived a very simple life and he never really had a partner in life and his work was his life. And he had an encyclopedic, encyclopedic knowledge of fashion. So things like street photography, I credit him as the creator of street fashion photography and also runway photography. Uh, I had the pleasure of meeting and working alongside Bill for many, many years. And he started his career at Women's Wear Daily as a photographer. So we had a lot in common. And when he switched over to digital, if he was out on a job or at a fashion show and he was struggling, he would come to me. And I felt very honored that he would ask my help. Yes. So he he invented that. And then he he also thought of this whole concept that to really see the full spectrum of the fashion world you need to see the street fashion and then you need to see what's on the runway but you also need to see the evening gowns and the street fashion is what people are wearing themselves it's what they put together themselves it's people that aren't dressed like a yeah. celebrity and so and then you see what's on the runways and the runways are like pushing the limit of fashion uh, uh, exploration and, and creativity and uh, innovation. So you see what's on the runway. It's almost like a car show where you're like, that car will never be on the road, but it's great to see all the, everything that could be done. And then you see the evening gowns with the socialites that actually have the money to buy what's on the runway and wear it. And I never saw anybody lose. He never lost enthusiasm. When he saw a big, beautiful ball gown, he would, be it, no matter who, what he was doing, talking to somebody, he would giddily run over and start the ah, <laughs> photo. And so, yeah, I miss him. I miss him. He was a legend. He was a good friend and uh, and a real innovator and and a purist. I mean, he worked for the New York Times. He wouldn't even take a glass of water at an event. He wouldn't sit down or take a gift bag or anything. Purely into the craft. Wow. Yeah, and there are a couple of great documentaries. I think I saw the first one. I think uh, Bill Cunningham, New York, mm -hmm. uh, which is wonderful. I haven't caught the second one, but the first one I can really recommend to people to check out. And that's a great recommendation. Thank you so much, man. And, and best of luck with the with this book and the ones to come. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure and an honor to be here. Thanks to Steve for joining us. Find out more about Steve and his work by visiting steveichner.com. And if you're a devoted listener and subscribe to the show, write us a review on whatever service you listen to podcasts. Those reviews have allowed us to grow. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and our mailing list. On the YouTube channel, I offer critiques on images submitted by TCF listeners like you, while the mailing list keeps you updated with all TCF events, including workshops and more. Sign up today. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or make a one-time or recurring donation via PayPal. Thanks to Bruce Lipsky, Diana Green, John Norris, Matt Grun, and Michael Severini for their recent contributions. We also provide a series of ebooks on photography available for purchase on our website. It's my way of sharing my experience and knowledge and another way for you to support the show. 
And if you can't find every episode of the show on whatever service you listen to podcasts, download the Candid Frame app, which is available for Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candor Frames audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.